Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Today we are going to talk about tax regulations. Yes, we are not going to look at the body of tax law coming from the legislative branch. Instead, we turn our gaze to the body of tax law coming from several blocks down Pennsylvania Avenue and the executive branch of government. Specifically, we're going to answer an oft-asked question on how durable the TCJA guidance might be, especially if we have a change in control of government. Now, just think what we as the tax community have been through since December of 2017. Yes, we had the TCJA enacted and that $10 trillion tax bill raised so many questions. We all spent months reading it, just trying to understand exactly what the law did. But as you know, the law itself, as with most legislation, left so many questions unanswered. So enter the executive branch. Doing what it is supposed to do, execute the law, and in doing that, issuing regulations and other guidance on how taxpayers should implement this new law. And what a job they've done. Taxpayers may not always be happy with all the content of that guidance, but you can't say they haven't been working hard. As of today, there are more than 7,700 pages of regulatory guidance implementing the TCJA all in less than three years. Pretty remarkable output from the people at the IRS and Treasury. But here's the thing we wanted to talk about today. What if all, or at least parts of that guidance were swept away almost overnight? Where would that leave taxpayers and the larger tax community? Not only in terms of actually complying with the law, filing tax returns and so forth, but in explaining to the IRS how a tax position they've taken is consistent with the underlying statute. Far-fetched, you say? Well, maybe, but it is possible, made possible by a once upon a time little used law, the Congressional Review Act, but it's a law that has seen an exponential growth in application in recent years. And one taxpayer should at least be aware of, especially as we look at the possibility of a change in control of government with an election just around the corner. Okay, so with that introduction, Jen, let me start with you, because I know this is something that you dealt with during your time on Capitol Hill. What exactly is the Congressional Review Act and how does it work? Sort of what's the process in terms of how Congress can apply this? So the CRA is a relatively new tool. I mean, it was just passed in 1996, and in a nutshell, it provides Congress with the ability to overturn federal agency action. Now, it requires agencies to report the issuance of rules to Congress in combination with these new special procedures to overturn those agency actions or rules. So how does Congress do it? Well, there is a specific method. It's through a resolution of disapproval. So if a CRA joint resolution of disapproval is approved by both houses of Congress and signed by the president, or if Congress successfully overrides a presidential veto of the original disapproval resolution, the rule issue cannot go into effect or continue to be in effect. So this is a very powerful tool at Congress's disposal. So what are the procedures? What do they have to do? It's not a simple, hey, this can be overturned at our whim. There are very specific rules. It's, it's a real statutory framework. It's kind of a regulatory framework, frankly. Now, there has to be a rule, and it has to be submitted to Congress pursuant to the CRA. So when we talk about tax rules, it could be any rule. It doesn't have to be a major rule, a major regulation. It's anything that's considered to be a rule. So that's minor and major rules. It has to be submitted to the congressional record. And that submission, the publication to the congressional record, is what starts the tolling of the specific time frame. Now, you don't have from whenever a rule is published to whenever Congress decides to take it up. There's a very strict limitation of 60 
days for congressional action. That's the amount of time that Congress is allotted to overturn a rule. So this is a significant rate date restriction. And But there are two running date counting exercises. Of course, it's more complicated than just counting 60 calendar days. It's 60 legislative days. Now, there are two date counts. One is just the general rule where it says, you know, it's 60 days. It applies to CRA action that doesn't have a fast track or privilege. So it wouldn't be subject to a privileged vote. Now, for that exercise, it's 60 days. It only includes days in which both the House and Senate are in session. Okay, so that's where it gets tricky. If either one of them isn't in session, the day doesn't count towards that 60 days. So if you have continuous session days, for instance, and the House and Senate adjourn on a Friday and reassume business on Monday, weekends and holidays also count because you have the only days that are excluded, in addition to days in which either chamber is not in session or both chambers are out of session, are when either chamber is gone for more than three days pursuant to an adjournment resolution. So you count the days, and if there's fewer than three days where Congress is out of session, then you do get to count those weekends and holidays. If there's a longer gap between session days, you don't count those weekends. So as you can imagine, with the legislative calendars moving around, it gets really, really difficult to track, especially this year, right? We saw that the Senate... In August, they were in session an extra week, but then this week, they were expected to be in session and were not in session due to the outbreak of COVID among some senators. So this is kind of a moving calendar. Now, the next exercise, and that's just for general non-privileged vote, well, there is a Senate fast track. Now, this is a 60-day period, and the fast track procedure ensures that it is a privileged vote. The Senate has to take up a Senate fast track disapproval resolution. So you have the same 60-day measure, except that it only counts days in which the Senate is in session. Also begins when the rule is received by Congress and published in the Federal Register, and that's when you start to count. You only look at Senate days, and that's only for that Senate procedure. So let's say you do make it through the House, make it through the Senate. Then what is the effect of this disapproval? What is the purpose? Well, the rule, as I said before, cannot continue to be in effect and is treated as if the rule had never taken effect. So it has a retroactivity element to it. And that's pretty much, you know, the basic procedures in a nutshell for this really complicated legislative process. Wow, Jen, that is, <laughs> that's a lot of information. So let me just see if I've got this right. Tell me if I understand the way the CRA works and if I've got this correctly. What it basically says is that Congress can review regulation from the executive branch more or less to ensure, from Congress's point of view, that it comports with the statute. But to do that, there are certain limitations, one of which is they only have a finite amount of time. So they can't go back years and say, hey, that regular issue years ago was terrible. They basically have this 60-day rule, subject to all kinds of crazy counting, but put that aside for the moment. They have 60 days to more or less identify a rule as one that they would like to challenge under the Congressional Review Act. If they do that, and they meet the certain 60-day rules, it does have one benefit that it gets this fast-track review in the Senate that it can't be filibustered. So basically what you're saying is they need just a simple majority in the Senate to overturn it. If they do that, 
they can overturn a rule issued by the executive branch. And not only does it pull down the rule, it basically tells the executive branch, you can issue a new rule on this, but it can't be at all similar or substantially similar to the one that we just took down. So sort of the legislative branch grabbing back its authority from the executive branch in terms of how a particular law is implemented. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's hard to do. Right. Because even though it is taking back some of the authority to review these acts, and a lot of these, you know, are kind of viewed in the whole purpose for passing the CRA was that, you know, a lot of this is significant policy making. Congress wanted to take back its ability to review policies that were being promulgated by the administration that had the underlying legislative effect, significant policy shifts. And part of the reason you need that House, Senate, and administration is because, you know, this is a significant overturning of policy items that taxpayers, in particular in tax situations, have been relying on. So, Tom, question for you. Because one of the things I think, and Jen, I'm not sure you said that, but this is true about the Congressional Review Act, is if Congress passes, it still has to go to the president. The president has to sign it. So let me ask a sort of a practical question, Tom. If you had a president willing to sign in the law this thing that more or less undoes a regulation, wouldn't it just be easier for the president to go to the Treasury, in this case of tax regulation, or any agency, and just say, you know what, why don't you just rescind that reg? I don't like it. Why couldn't they just do that rather than go through all this mumbo-jumbo that Jen just laid out? Potentially, it's quick and easy. If you go through the reg process, you still have to go through the notice and comment requirements of the Administrative Procedure Act to get there in the first place. And then maybe more importantly, you've also got to justify the rule. And the government having once promulgated a rule with presumably the the required justification to immediately then say, forget about all that and take it back, you run into some potential issues on judicial review about the the justification for the repeal. So potentially it's quick and easy, but there, in addition to those calendar problems, counting the days that Jen was talking about, there's some other procedural issues on the floor that complicate it. For instance, you can't bundle all of the regs you want to subject to the Congressional Review Act together. You have to do them one by one, which means uh, consuming a lot of floor time for each one since there's 10 hours of debate. So you can't pick them apart. So you have to blow up the entire rule if you're going to subject it to the Congressional Review Act. And you put all that together, it limits the desire of Congress really to go after some of these things. So on both sides, it's complicated, whether you use the Congressional Review Act for all the reasons Jen and you just talked about, Tom. But the flip side of just doing it within the executive branch alone isn't all that easy either. You've got the Administrative Procedures Act hanging over your head, right, the APA, and you've really got to follow it to the letter lest you open yourself up to potential for litigation in the future. That's not all that easy either. So either way, look at it as complicated. I mean, but it has been done in just this example of, you know, let's just take Section 385 is maybe the poster child for Treasury changing its mind, which is, you know, we've had how many iterations of 385 where Treasury has rescinded that rule for various reasons, I guess. And one other thing to think about, Tom, that you kind of alluded to is one advantage of using the CRA over an agency just withdrawing a reg itself is that let's just say one president decides to pull down a reg because they don't like it but then next president from opposite party could reinstate the reg and we could go back and forth forever using the cra specifically by law means you can't reinstate a 
substantially similar reg. So it really sort of blocks future administrations from trying to reinstate something once the CRA has brought a reg down, and maybe that's one political advantage as well. Okay, well, Tom, back to you then. So now that we kind of got an idea of what the CRA is, how it works, how often has this thing been used? You feel like this is kind of a big deal. We should hear about it more often, and we haven't that much. So how often and, and how has it been used in the past? Well, one of the big limitations is that it not only requires a joint resolution of Congress, both houses have to agree on it, but the president has to sign it. And since the president's administration has just issued the regulation, it's unlikely the president is just going to agree. So this really only comes up when there's a change in administration, usually a change in party, and the incoming administration is of the same party as both houses of Congress. So the only two times we've seen this employed in the past have been in in 2001 when the Bush administration came in and they repealed under the CRA one regulation that had been promulgated by the outgoing Clinton administration, something to do with ergonomics. And then again in 2017 when President Trump came into office with the Republican Congress. And they repealed 16 regulations from the Obama administration that had come up within that 60-day calendar period. And it's probably worth noting that none of the 17 that have been repealed under the CRA have involved tax. And it's, I think it's probably illustrative to look at the ones that were repealed in 2017, focusing a lot on environmental regulations, labor regulations, education regulations. Those might also be the focus of the incoming Biden administration if there is an income Biden administration and a Democratic Senate, but you know none of the 17 have been tax regulations. So very helpful, I think, in further narrowing the application of this rule, right, which goes back to this question we get asked all the time, you know, when we come back to the TCJA, are these regs at risk in the future? Well, all these limitations we've just talked about are important. You know, they generally apply to what people sometimes refer to as midnight regulations, right, sort of issued by one administration as it's on its way out the door. That's what the 60-day rule is kind of about. But you have to have the right environment where you've got a change in control, likely, of Congress and the White House to align against it. So that's really sort of the limitation here in terms of how it's used. And as you say, Tom, it's interesting that it has never been used on a tax reg. And it's kind of funny that you had that used the first time all the way back in 2001, and then it sat dormant all those years. And maybe it's just because we didn't have the right alignment of facts. But then all of a sudden you had a massive use of it early on during the first years of the Trump administration where they undid a bunch of late Obama term regulations related to a bunch of other things. Got it. I will say that most recently, a tax rule did come up in November of 2018. And even though there was no chance Senate Democrats pushed for a CRA of a particular agency action, it was uh, RevProc 2018-38, which was related to, it was a very, very political issue related to donor disclosure. And even though there was no chance of it actually passing, it was viewed as a political tactic to force a vote, right, where you had to force the majority party to vote on this very specific and politically charged agency rule. So that is also another utilization of CRA. Even though it had no chance of passing, it forced a specific floor vote on the rule. Really good point for two reasons, one of which is a reminder that because it was pushed by the Democrats and Republicans controlled the Senate, it couldn't get through, but it is still used to highlight the issue, number one. And number two, we keep talking about regulations. That's really a misnomer because in this case, it was a rev proc. As you said early on in your introduction, we just got to remind ourselves, this is talking about guidance really broadly from the executive branches, not just regs. 
So, okay, Jen, let's bring this back to the specific question that we've been getting about the TCJA regs. If after November we have divided control, whatever that might look like, the Republicans hang on to either the Senate or the White House, does that mean the CRA is off the table likely? And then we'll come back to, you know, sort of unified Democratic control. But first, this one of divided control. Definitely. It really does take CRA off the table because you need the House, the Senate, and the White House to approve of a disapproval resolution. So it's very difficult to do when you have a divided government, unless you are just pushing through that CRA in order to have bad votes on the record, right? But successful CRA, where you actually have an agency rule that's overturned, extremely difficult. Right. Okay, good. So that's a little bit clearer. Now let's go to a more complicated question is what if after November we have a democratically controlled House, democratically controlled Senate, democratically controlled White House? Look, Democrats have made no secret of the fact they don't like the TCJA. They've been critical of some options that the Trump Treasury has taken in implementing it. So does that mean that these things potentially are in play in that scenario, that some of the TCJA, especially these later ones, right, that came potentially within that 60-day counting, complex as it is, could theoretically be in jeopardy? Well, first of all, they would have to hit that 60-day threshold. But let's say that threshold is right, where you have the clock that did not hit that 60 days, and you have to refresh for the next Congress, you get a new 60-day clock that starts ticking. The answer is it's really disadvantageous to do so, right? Because when an agency rule, in particular regulation, and in particular the TCJA regulations that have come under attack, have all consistently been regulations that are taxpayer-friendly. And because of that, that would cause them to cost revenue. So if you did have a situation where there is a disagreement on the policy, they would be a lot politically savvier instead of overturning on CRA, you just simply have a legislative fix, right? If you have the House, the Senate, and the White House, you could pass a bill and raise that revenue and have the opportunity to spend it. Versus if you do a CRA overturning, then that just goes the money that goes back into the baseline and you don't get to utilize that revenue in order to pay for other policy priorities. Got it. So if I follow what you're saying is, let's just say that we have that unified democratic control. They look at a particular regulation and say, that's way too taxpayer friendly. You know, it's a giveaway to taxpayers in some way, shape or form. We don't like it. You're, you're much better off saying, let's change the law, right? Because changing the law would raise revenue and that you could then use that revenue to spend elsewhere versus if you just use the Congressional Review Act to undo the reg, you don't get any credit from a revenue perspective. You're just going to have to reissue a new reg that maybe isn't as taxpayer friendly, but you don't get money to spend elsewhere. And isn't it always better to have the money to spend by undoing it legislatively? Because then you can go fund other priorities. Did I get that right? Definitely. That's interesting. Tom, thoughts? I mean, do you agree with that? Does that sound right that even though there may be some dislike for the TCJA and some of these regs broadly, you wouldn't expect or it doesn't seem that obvious that you would see a challenge under the CRA in a unified democratic control world if that happens next year? Yeah, that's the way I see it. There are going to be any number of other priorities. You know, there are the procedural problems I mentioned before about you can't bundle these things as the big one, which means you have to expend a fair amount of floor time even without a filibuster 
to, to manage to push through a CRA resolution. And I think despite some grousing about maybe Treasury went a little too far with this reg or that reg in the tax area, the Democrats, assuming they have control, are going to be a lot more focused on things in the environmental area and the labor area and the education area, which have been the focus of these kinds of disputes before and probably are not going to be inclined to waste the time on tax regs when they have to blow up the whole reg in the first place. And in the second place, they plan on readdressing a lot of the TCG issues in legislation anyway. So why take the time? Right. That's the other important point. Look at the Biden plan, right? The Biden plan that we've talked about so much here undoes so much of the particular regulations that the Democrats may view as problematic anyway. That's going to be the focus. Let's just get on to our tax plan, which will make some of these regulations unnecessary, superfluous, or irrelevant in its own way. So maybe that's where you get to. One other point that I want to make before we wrap up is we talked a lot about this special rule that obviates the need for the filibuster. And you may be thinking, you guys did a whole episode about the filibuster. What if there is no filibuster? Well, just remember, there are two different 60-day rules here. The one one, which gets you out from underneath the filibuster, it's a Senate-specific counting, but there's the general 60-day rule that you still have to beat to even apply the CRA. Now, it's a little more relaxed, but you still have to meet that 60-day rule. So even if the Democrats were to undo the filibuster, it doesn't mean they have free reign to use the CRA on anything because they still have to meet that other 60-day rule for it even to be within the reach of the CRA, if all that makes sense. Okay. Well, look, that's all for today. I know this was sort of a narrow topic to discuss this week, especially after we've been flying at 20,000 feet for so many weeks exploring the Biden and Trump tax plans. But I hope you'll agree that as taxpayers or tax advisors, the Congressional Review Act is important. Separation of powers is kind of an important aspect of our governmental system here in the U.S. It's really one of the arguably most brilliant inventions of man in providing checks on the excesses of government that was so often a hallmark of pre-17th century governments. So then maybe that leads you to think, isn't the Congressional Review Act the device that actually undermines this separation of powers concept? I mean, shouldn't the legislative branch legislate and the executive branch execute? Well, as we discussed back in August on our episode about President Trump's executive orders on payroll tax, this power tug of war between the legislative and the executive branch has been going on more or less since the beginning of the United States. And in recent decades, the executive branch has been mostly winning that tug of war. To that end, the CRA can be viewed not as a breach of separation of powers, but really as a restoration to be used only where Congress believes the executive branch has gone too far. But on the other side, it can also be viewed as a political exercise, one where one party tries to undo actions of another, maybe less on constitutional grounds and more on ideological. Which of these two theories you ascribe to may depend on whether you identify more with the person in the White House or those people in the Capitol. With that, we'll part ways for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, and I hope to see you soon. <laughs>